0: Greetings and welcome to A Voice for the Voiceless, a podcast about endangered species. I am your host, Jenny Sisler, coming to you Monday, August 1st, 2022, from beautiful Sunderland, Massachusetts. And before we get into the amphibian that I'm going to discuss tonight, I wanted to give you a fantastic update about the subject of my last podcast, uh, which is the Mountain Bongo. Uh, It has been confirmed that uh, the first baby born in the game reserve in the wild was born on July 8th, a little girl, and I cannot remember what they named her, but it's just such a beautiful testament to the decades that have been put into preserving this creature, and It just makes me really happy to know that everything Mr. Holden dreamt of and hoped for these animals is starting to finally become a reality. So there was a video that the Conservancy posted on their Facebook page. They actually were able to get close enough to mother and baby to get a little video and she's absolutely gorgeous. She's beautiful and she and her mother are doing very well. So I'm very happy to be able to share this uh, conservation success story with you. Um, so now we're going to go from the forests of Kenya to the canals of Mexico City uh, Because tonight's creature that I wanted to discuss is a strange little salamander called the axolotl and Aztec legend has it that the uh, god of fire and lightning Xolotl, was being threatened with execution and in order to avoid sacrifice, he turned himself into a salamander, and that's where the axolotl comes from. And, but I think the axolotl is too cute to be associated with some kind of fierce god, but that's just me. Um, axolotls are a salamander that is neotenic, and all that means is basically the adult of the species retains certain characteristics of the juvenile of the species, and so basically they never really grow up fully. Uh, but in fact, some scientists do call axolotls the Peter Pan salamander, because they're kind of stuck in perpetual teenage in their perpetual teenage years. Um, all salamanders start out living in water; um, they are spawned much like frogs are and then eventually when they reach their physical maturity they lose their gills and they climb up on land and spend the rest of their lives on land but the axolotl never does that it perpetually lives in the water and um, it also has the dubious distinction of both being nearly extinct in the wild and very very prolifically bred in captivity Um, nobody really has any complete numbers of how many there are in the wild. Um, the Mexican government hasn't really cared enough to do specific studies, but uh, some scientists say that the numbers fell from about 6,000 per square kilometer in the late 1990s to about 35 axolotl per square kilometer in the uh canals as of last year. So that is pretty dire. Um, The two things that endanger the axolotl in Mexico City are pollution. Uh, They have pretty crummy infrastructure when it comes to sewage runoff and anytime there is a potentially powerful storm, never mind a hurricane, but just a particularly hard rain can uh, overwhelm the canal systems with raw sewage And then, of course, there's uh, fertilizer and runoff from farms that gets in the canals. And, of course, if you have polluted water, these creatures aren't going to be able to breathe any better than the fish or anything that live in the canal. So pollution is one problem. But another, which kind of proves the old adage that the path to hell is paved with good intentions, is that they are prey for the non uh, native species of fish that live in the canal uh, primarily tilapia and carp and tilapia and carp have done more damage when they are introduced to an ecosystem than probably any other fish I can think of that I've read about um, but in the 70s and 80s when uh, the rural poor of Mexico City were when the, you know very well-meaning NGOs were trying to help the poor, have a more protein-rich diet, they introduced carp and tilapia to the ecosystem. Well, that's all well and good. You can eat carp and tilapia, but the carp and tilapia feed on the axolotls, so this poor little creature never really stood a chance. Between being poisoned by human waste and then being eaten by fish that shouldn't even be in the canal in the first place because they're not native to Mexico, the poor critters, you know, they didn't really stand a chance. Now, they are very very prolifically bred in captivity for two reasons. One is because they are a they're a treasure trove of information for medical research and they're also kind of cute, strange-looking little things and the aquarium industry breeds them. So there's literally tens of thousands in captivity. Um and it's very interesting to me when you read about the medical research that's benefited from using axolotls as uh, research uh, animals. Uh, In the early 20th century, uh, scientists studying axolotls found the cause of spina bifida. And in the 1920s, the study of axolotls led to the discovery of thyroid hormones. And this is really fascinating. In 2011, some uh, some researchers were experimenting with axolotl cells that actually helped stop breast cancer cells from multiplying by turning on a tumor suppressant gene that would kind of halt the breast cancer cells in their track. And this all sounds well and good, and it's very important. I'm not knocking, you know, scientific research. We need these kind of um, research projects. But the problem is with the... Uh, is with the inbreeding because axolotls, they breed like rabbits. You can have two in a tank and then a month later, probably 20, 30, you know. But the problem is, is that the inbreeding coefficient is too high with the captive population of axolotls. And the inbreeding coefficient measures how small a gene pool is. So for instance, an identical twin has a 100% Inbreeding coefficient because you've got the exact same DNA. Uh, first cousins have a 12% inbreeding coefficient because there's that similar similarity in the DNA. And if you take famous historical human families, for instance, and look at their inbreeding coefficients, the Habsburg kings in Europe were among the most inbred in the world. <laughs> Not. Exactly, a nice way to put it, but they were messing around with all their cousins and everything. And if you did the genetic testing on the Habsburgs, you found that they had about a 20% inbreeding coefficient. And axolotls have an inbreeding coefficient of 35%, which is actually not good either for medical research or for the purposes of releasing them back into the wild. Because, of course, when you dilute the gene pool, you make them more susceptible to certain kinds of illnesses which maybe in the wild they were able to fight but so you know a lot of people think well why don't you just take the captive stock of axolotls if they're really that prolific in the wild and just you know if they're excuse me if they're really that prolific in captivity and release them into the wild why not well you can and it's been tried and there's been a little bit of modest success but the problem is you can't, you know, with a genetic, uh, with a sh- with a shallow genetic um, background, so to speak, you're diluting the diversity of the gene pool and making them more susceptible when you do release them. So, yeah, it would make sense to say, well, why don't you just take some 1,000 from a lab or a thousand from a pet store and put them back in the canals but that's not exactly the way it works Um, especially when you think about most of the lab specimens that exist today can be traced back to I think it was about I think I read it was about 34 that were taken out of uh, the Xochimilco river in in 1863 So, yeah, loss of genetic diversity plays a very negative part in uh, trying to protect endangered species. Um, So, really, we need, if we want to protect the axolotls, we need to clean up their environment. Uh, We need to protect the canals in Mexico City from development. We need to focus on helping the Mexican government fix their infrastructure so that pollution is not a chronic problem. And they, they also need to address the invasive carp and tilapia, um, which at this point is probably easier said than done, because like I said, in the 70s, They thought they were doing a good thing. Humanitarian outreach, bring protein to the poor people who live in the rural areas who don't have a very diversified diet. Uh, So they've probably been, they've probably had tilapia and carp in the canals since before I was born. So how do you clean up that many invasive species? Um, It can be done and it should be done. Uh, we should care about this cute little salamander uh, not just for what we can personally get out of it with uh, medical research but because it is a unique it is a distinctly unique Mexican treasure uh, an axolotl doesn't exist anywhere else in the world Um, so hopefully in the coming months and years there will be good news on this front and I can someday come back to you and say the axolotl population in Mexico City is booming and the Mexicans have restored this ecosystem and they're doing well Uh, but in the meantime all that we can do is support scientists who are trying to support this cute little salamander